Hey friends, welcome to The Word for Everyday Disciples with Dave DeSelm, a weekly podcast that brings biblical teaching to everyday people in ways we can understand and put into practice. I'm your host, Gwen DeSelm, and with me is our teacher, Dave DeSelm. As you know, Dave is the executive director of Dave DeSelm Ministries, offering help and hope to everyday pastors through coaching and other resources. Thanks for joining me, Dave. It's always great to be here. Well, in this episode of our series called Blessed Are the Peacemakers, we come to a topic that, quite honestly, a lot of pastors would just ignore. We're going to talk about racism. Dave, why did you feel like this was important and even necessary to talk about? Well, this teaching series took place in 2013. I had been the senior pastor at Fellowship in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and in the years previous, I had a growing sense of conviction about diversity in the church. I did a biblical study and realized that the day of Pentecost, there were representatives from 30 different people groups. There was tremendous diversity in the early days of the church. But then I also looked back in the book of Revelation and saw how at the end, there would be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation around the throne worshiping Jesus. The church began with diversity. The church ended with diversity. And I wondered, why not diversity now? Ironically, 10 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday had been noticed as the most segregated hour of the week. So we began to intentionally seek to become a diverse congregation. In fact, it became one of our core values. Over the years, we saw that diversity grow until we were nearly 30% non-white. It was a beautiful picture to my way of thinking of how the church was always supposed to have been. But this took a lot of intentionality, a lot of hard conversations. It took a lot of grace and humility. I knew that if we hoped as Jesus' disciples to honor his prayer that we would be one, then as pastor, I had to challenge the beliefs that kept us apart. Beliefs ingrained in us because of our culture, because of our upbringing, because of our experience, because of our humanity. And look instead to what the Bible says about how we as God's representatives in the world are to live. Friends, we still need that teaching. Tragically, it seems we are more polarized than ever. Hate and fear seem to be the language of the day. We need to be reminded that the way of Jesus is love. That's why we as followers of Jesus have to grapple with the issue of racism. It's hard enough to love those who are like us. It's that much harder to love those who are different than us. Yet for the church of Jesus Christ, this is the sign of the world that we belong to him, that we love one another. That's so good, Dave. Thank you so much. Well, friends, as we get started into today's message, let me just give you a warning. Um, In the reading of a story of one man's experience with racism, a racial slur is used. We know that for some, this word can be triggering, and so we just wanted to give you a heads up. So let's get started and turn our attention to the walls of hostility. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to continue on in a teaching series, Blessed are the Peacemakers. I'm so convinced that this is a necessary part of our discipleship to learn what it means to be people of reconciliation. And for some of us in this room right now, it's a relatively easy thing to consider. But for others of us in this room, 
To consider being a peacemaker, to be a pursuer of reconciliation, is exceedingly challenging. Because quite frankly, you have been falsely accused. You have been terribly betrayed. You have been deeply hurt. And just the thought of moving toward reconciliation is a challenging one. If anyone knew about this as one of the men who's, quite frankly, one of my heroes, Dr. John Perkins, now in his 80s, is probably one of the greatest advocates of reconciliation between rich and poor, black and white, young and old. I've been privileged to hear Dr. Perkins speak multiple times. Let me read you just a little bit about this remarkable man, and this will contextualize just how extraordinary his commitment to peacemaking is. John Perkins knows a few things about suffering. Born on a plantation near New Hebron, Mississippi, John watched from a young age as his mother died of malnutrition and his father left to find work 50 miles away. Growing up with his grandmother in this small southern town, he witnessed the painful consequences of racism. Quote, Bigoted whites were systematic in maintaining control over blacks with dehumanizing rules designed to take away any sense of personal identity. We were addressed as nigger or boy. Elderly black men might be addressed as good old nigger. When approaching a white man on the street, we were to step off the sidewalk into the gutter, keeping our heads lowered and our eyes averted. Those in the black community who avoided being uppity were generally left alone, though not always. Those who defended themselves faced serious consequences, sometimes even death. At age 16, Dr. Perkins witnessed firsthand the terrible effects of hatred and racism when his brother Clyde, a decorated war hero, was waiting in line at the theater with some friends. Clyde and his friends were having some fun horsing around when the sheriff, who was nearby, asked them to quiet down. When Clyde tried to talk to the sheriff, he was promptly clubbed with the sheriff's baton. When Clyde tried in self-defense to grab the baton, the sheriff stepped back and shot him two times in the stomach. John rode with his brother to the nearest hospital, 60 miles away. When they finally arrived, Clyde was placed unconscious on a gurney, with a blood pressure cuff and an IV drip, and left to die. As John looked on helplessly at his brother's lifeless body, an unfamiliar rage welled up in him. Knowing the rage inside John, along with the desire to exact revenge, would land him on death row, or worse, his family convinced him to move out of the state, to which he agreed, and he moved to California. In California, Dr. Perkins built a new life with a promising career and a beautiful wife. Yet something did not seem right. His life was fueled by anger, ambition, and the need to succeed in the white man's world. Dr. Perkins' wife was a devout Christian. He was not. While he attended church sometimes, he never understood the grace of God through Christ. This began to change as his three-year-old son came home from Sunday school quoting verses. He was impressed and intrigued. In the midst of this, a friend of John's invited him to the church, and for the first time, something took. John Perkins finally discovered the peace and unconditional love that his spirit had hungered for all these years. 
This awakening to Jesus sparks something in John's soul, and he begins studying the Bible and the great Christian leaders therein. And out of this was birthed a new calling to bring racial reconciliation through the gospel. In 1960, he moved from California back to Mississippi. They rented a small two-room house in Mendenhall and opened the Fisherman's Mission, a small storefront building. These were hard times for ministry. It was culminated in a tragic event where he was set upon by white supremacists, abducted and beat mercilessly for a full night, nearly unto death. But during these beatings, a strange lucidity came over him as if he were seeing the men for the first time. An unfamiliar emotion gripped him. Pity. As the blows continued to rain down, he uttered a silent prayer. Lord, if you will let me survive this, I will devote myself to bringing the races together in love and service to you. And over the years, John Perkins kept that promise. He developed the Spencer Perkins Center for Reconciliation in Jackson, Mississippi, and he's the chairman emeritus of the Christian Community Development Association, headquartered in Jackson. As I mentioned, I've been privileged to hear him speak multiple times, and this senior statesman, when he speaks of the love of God in Christ, the transforming power of the gospel, and the need to somehow bring reconciliation to the races, I tell you what, it's like you're hearing the Apostle Paul himself speak. John's life could have been one of bitterness, hatred, and revenge, but instead it was transformed through Christ, the power of the gospel to reconcile. Now this issue of relational breakdown across what I'm calling tribal lines is as old as the Bible. You see, you're naturally part of a tribe, a racial tribe, a gender tribe, an age tribe, an education tribe, an economic tribe. You're part of a tribe. But this tribalism has historically always led to conflict. And we read about it here in Ephesians chapter 2, and we read about a workable solution. Have you found it yet? Paul is writing here, beginning in verse 11 of Ephesians 2. He says this, Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised. And when you read that word in quote there, you've got to have a, a sneer in your voice because it is a racial slur. You uncircumcised by those who call themselves, and here's pride in your voice, the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope, without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity. You might want to put in parenthesis, one new tribe out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross." By which he was put to death. He put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. 
Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household. So what's going on here? Well, we can see some tribalism here that he's alluding to. The tribalism was between the Gentiles, the non-Jews, and the Israelites, or between the uncircumcised and the circumcised. And this classic rift went back thousands of years. Let me see if I can briefly set up for you what happened uh, thousands of years ago. After the fall of man, and we discussed this last week, remember? When the first Adam failed, we talked about that. God set about on this great reconciliation and redemption mission. He decided to reverse the curse by sending a second Adam, who was Jesus. But he had to create a context through which to send that second Adam. He began to do that by calling out an ex-idol worshiper named Abraham. He gave Abraham a challenge, basically asking him whether or not he would trust God. There are a variety of aspects of the challenge, but the biggest part of it was, would this 90-year-old man and his barren 80-year-old wife trust that God could give them a son? And the Bible says, Abraham believed God, and the Lord counted that to him as righteousness. You know, to use a word from last week, he became justified before God. Abraham, the first man of faith, if you will, uh, along this new line. Then the Lord gave him this great promise, you see by way of the side screens. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, as a sign that God had set the Israelites apart as a special people, he gave them the the ritual of circumcision. It was a ritual by which uh, Israelite men would be physically marked out as a sign of God's covenant people. From Abraham on, that was practiced. On the eighth day after a boy was born, he would be circumcised. It would demonstrate he has literally been cut out, set apart as part of God's covenant people. So when you read about the Jews calling themselves the circumcision, a lot of pride in that. And when you read here in these words, the uncircumcision, it is a racial slur. I find it ironic. Down thousands of years later, we still use our racial slurs, don't we? Anything to make our tribe look superior to or above another tribe. Some of us in this room know how painful those racial slurs can be. Racial slurs that demean you, that dismiss your tribe. Racial slurs. Now to be sure, the nation of Israel did have a special place in God's heart. But they were not to be exclusively special. Did you see that line in the last slide that was up there? I will bless you that you might become a what? A blessing. Blessed to be a blessing. That is to say, they were to be those who would call people to join this wonderful thing, not keep people away from this wonderful thing. 
But all too quickly, they saw their selection not as a platform from which to invite others in, but as a reason to keep others out. And we see racism at its ugliest at that moment. Lest you think this was a minor thing, here's what some Jewish rabbis of that day said about the uncircumcised. The Jews had an immense contempt for the Gentile. The Gentiles said the Jews were created, get this, by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. God, they said, loved only Israel of all the nations that he had made. It was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of sorest need, that is to say, when she was giving birth. For that would bring another Gentile into the world. The barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, or if a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl was carried out. Such contact with a Gentile was equivalent of death. Now can you begin to see the context of Ephesians 2, 11 and following? There are these walls of hostility between the tribes. That's what Paul is talking about here. It was in full force. Now this idea, to use a $10 word for this, is ethnocentrism. Let me hear you say ethnocentrism. Ethnocentrism is a belief that one's people group is superior, more significant than others. Your group, your tribe, is superior. It's more significant. This is ethnocentrism. Quite frankly, ethnocentrism, when it goes bad, goes to racism. Ethnocentrism. My tribe. Racism against your tribe. You're listening to The Word for Everyday Disciples with Dave DeSelm. Dave will continue his message in just a moment. If you are inspired by the life and story of John Perkins and would like to learn more about him and his work in reconciliation and justice, be sure to check out this episode's show notes. We've included links to some websites that you may want to explore, as well as links to some of his most popular books. You can find all of that at davedeselmministries.org slash podcast slash 132. That's 132. Well, as you know, Dave DeSelm Ministries is here to resource everyday pastors as they seek to equip everyday people to become everyday disciples. And one of the ways that we do that is through coaching. In the coaching relationship, pastors and leaders have the opportunity to receive individualized, practical guidance from Dave on the issues that they're facing in life and ministry. These one-on-one sessions offer a safe place to discuss some of the unique challenges that you're facing with someone who's a bit further down the road of ministry. If you'd like to learn more about coaching, go to davedeselministries.org or email us at info at davedeselministries.org. Now, let's get back to Dave and the rest of today's teaching. Now, we see this These walls begin to come up, ironically, in the temple. This is how the temple looked back in the days of the New Testament. And there were multiple walls in this. There were barriers everywhere. For example, the Gentiles could come no closer than the court of the Gentiles. That's all the closer they could get 
to the presence of God. Incidentally, remember when Jesus cleansed the temple? Remember that story, he cleansed the temple? This is where he did it. This was where the buying and the selling of doves and lambs was done. That's as close as the Gentiles could get, and that's what made him so angry. The only place these people could worship had become a marketplace. This is what he cleansed. Now beyond this, Jewish women could go to what was called the court of the women. They could go that far. But notice the tribalism. The women, even though they were Israelite women, could not get any closer. The next place was where only Jewish men could go. It was called the court of the Israelites. They could go that far. Notice the walls of separation. Indeed, the walls of hostility that are here in, of all places, a church. Beyond that, there was yet another wall. Because here were where the priests would offer sacrifice, and this was called the holy place. The men would hand their sacrifices to the priests. The priests then would go beyond the barrier and offer their sacrifices. But yet there was one more wall. In fact, this wall was a curtain six inches thick. It separated the holy place from that which was called the Holy of Holies. Only one person could go into the Holy of Holies, the high priest. And he could only go into it one day a year, the Day of Atonement. There was the Ark of the Covenant, in which were the Ten Commandments. And there he would sprinkle the blood of a lamb for Israel's corporate sins. This was the temple. This is what Paul is talking about here in this floor plan, all right? So you have all these walls of separation. But now watch what happened on a fateful Friday. We see this in the Gospel of Luke. On that Friday, the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. What afternoon was that? Good Friday. Good Friday. An unseen hand ripped a six-inch thick curtain in two in the Holy of Holies. And for the first time, the common man could go into the presence of God himself with no need of a priest or a sacrifice. The parallel account speaks of the timing of this ripping of the curtain. Matthew 27, when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Notice the next words, at that moment. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. In Jesus' death, the final barrier was removed. But that's not all that was removed. The whole temple system became obsolete at that time. A new tribe was founded, Christianity. The last barrier is gone, but that's not all. No longer was there a barrier where only the priests could go. That was gone. No longer was there a barrier where only the Israelite men could go. 
That was gone. No longer was there a barrier where only the Israelite women could go. That was gone. And no longer was there a barrier beyond which the Gentiles could not go. That was now gone. Which is why Paul wrote these words in Galatians chapter 3. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all, what's the next word? You are all what? One in Christ Jesus. You're all one. Now look back to the text and see if it didn't begin to clarify a bit. Beginning, let's go down to verse 14, Ephesians 2. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two, that be the circumcised and the uncircumcised, one, has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. He's setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity, one new tribe out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. This is the church. This is the church, which is why you first set of blanks go like this. When we become Christians, we may retain our cultural affinity, but it's no longer our primary identity. This is huge. When you become a Christian, you retain your cultural affinity, but it is no longer your primary identity. An African-American pastor named Brenda Salter McNeil writes so well of this in her book about reconciliation. Here's a quote from her. The diversity of languages at Pentecost suggests something about the diversity of God's movement on earth. The message of Pentecost is you are important to God. Or if I could paraphrase, your tribe, your cultural tribe is important to God. Your distinctiveness is recognized and valued. However, like the disciples in the book of Acts, we must not make our ethnic identity the most central part of who we are. Is that making sense? Look at it this way. It's not that your culture is not rich and beautiful. It's not that it's not a glorious part of this tapestry called humanity. It is. It's valuable. It's beautiful. But notwithstanding that, that culture is not your ultimate identity. Your ultimate identity is in Jesus Christ. So because of that, get this, because of that, an elderly, rural, white woman is closer to a young, urban, black man than she is to her unbelieving father. Did you understand what I'm saying there? An elderly, rural, white woman is closer to a young, urban, black man because now they're of the same what? Tribe than she is to her own flesh and blood unbelieving father. Her new tribe trumps that tribe. In Christ, we join the ultimate tribe. And it's, it's this mind-blowing reality, friends, that we've got to grasp. In Christ, while we value the diversity, the beauty, we recognize there's a higher identity. And the walls of hostility can indeed 
come down. You know what the tragedy is? All too many churches today recognize the walls of hostility, and instead of challenging those walls, instead of speaking about something bigger than those walls, they reinforce those walls. They call it the, what they call it the homogeneous unit. Premise is this: people are more comfortable worshiping with their tribe, so don't fight it. I think that flies in the face of the whole New Testament. If the New Testament says anything, it says, enough tribalism, enough, enough hate, enough hurt, enough racism, enough prejudice, enough. You say, I I can't. I was brought up that way. I was taught that way. In Christ. Remember, it's got to start on the inside, right? In Christ You have been made a new creature, a new creation with a new spirit, and you have been adopted into a brand new family, and you have a wonderful set of brothers and sisters who, bless God, are different from you, and it makes you better for knowing them. It makes you better for loving them. And it shows a prejudiced, racist world that we've got something different. This is the beauty of the church. I find it ironic that the Apostle Paul wrote this because no one was more tribal than Paul. Remember his days before Jesus? He was an accessory to the murder of someone who dared to challenge his tribe. And he devoted much of his life before Jesus to dealing quite severely with those who were of another tribe. And yet when he became a Christian... Everything changed. Everything changed. Some of you here know exactly what Paul was like. You were taught to hate. You were shown to hurt. You knew what it was like to be mistreated. You knew what it was like to mistrust. We were schooled by our tribe. We were told that our tribe was everything, and that other tribes were nothing. In Christ, all that has changed. All that must change. It must change. Our cultural differences may distinguish us, but they should not define us. And they must not divide us. I celebrate the beauty of this new tribe. Who am I? I'm a 60-something white, college-educated, English-speaking American male. And all too easily, that could lead to destructive tribalism. I stand for the old. I stand for the white. I stand for the schooled. I stand for the red, white, and blue. Do you know what? Those things are a part of me, but they did not define me. Ultimately, I am a sinner saved by grace. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm a citizen of his kingdom. And I'm part of a new tribe. And if you're part of that tribe too, then you're my brother. And you're my sister. I stand for you. I'll fight for you. 
I'll do what it takes to make sure that you are honored as part of my tribe and his tribe. Amen? Thank you so much for joining us for the Word for Everyday Disciples with Dave DeSelm. If you'd like to let Pastor Dave know how this message has blessed you, send him an email at dave at davedeselmministries.org. Then join us next time as we look to God's Word for help and hope as we follow Jesus every day.